It was just a few weeks ago that um, Krista and I celebrated our 18th wedding anniversary. And I, I started to think back to when she first moved to Niagara in 2002. We didn't really know each other then. She didn't move here for me, that's for sure. She wanted to get out of the Leamington, Windsor area. She wanted to start a new life. She had three job offers in Niagara. And she was excited about setting off on a new adventure in St. Catharines with one significant caveat. She was not excited to move to the city that had produced Paul Bernardo, right? Like it had been 10 years at that point since Kristen French had disappeared and still the Paul, I mean, anybody who lived through that era, the Paul of all of that kind of still hung over our city. And, and in her heart, it was like kind of, why would I want to move to a place to live in a community with a killer. Um, I, I don't think it helped that I explained that Paul Bernardo actually lived in our neighborhood, that I knew old Mrs. Borland who owned the home before Paul and Carla moved in. I used to mow her lawn as a kid. It, it didn't help when I explained that the couple who moved out so that Paul and Carla could move in were actually youth leaders at our church. I don't think any of that created greater comfort um, because her question, she just thought, like, why would I want to live in the kind of community that can produce a killer? And to be perfectly frank, we're studying the Ten Commandments, but you don't need a commandment out of the Bible to, to let you know that this instinct that you have, this fundamental belief that the most basic of all of the ways that we need to love each other as people is that we don't take each other's lives, that that's just fundamentally true in our humanity. And yet here it is, the sixth commandment in Exodus chapter 20, nine letters in English, do not kill. We've started uh, each one of these sermons by explaining what the words in the commandment really mean. And this one, it will astonish you to learn that the Hebrew uh, for kill is um, do not um, like kill people. Don't, don't take a life. Uh, it refers to any killing in any kind of unsanctioned way. It doesn't have to be premeditated. It doesn't have to be on purpose. It's just any time you take someone else's life, it is a violation of this command, whether that's accidental and it couldn't be avoided, whether it's um, careless and it could have been avoided, or it covers manslaughter, which where there's no malice and there's no planning. It just kind of happened. It's second degree murder where there is malice, but no planning. First degree murder where there's both malice and planning doesn't matter. If you take another person's life, it is in violation of this command. Now there's all sorts of tension that sits around this command because right within the Old Testament, it seems like God commands war. God commands genocide, apparently. God commands capital punishment, and how we tease out those conversations is a matter for theological debate. It's interesting if you think about 21st century issues. What does this mean about dying of suicide? What does this mean about abortion? What does this mean uh, about self-defense or police violence or withdrawing life support or medical assistance in dying? Those are all complex and challenging 
interesting theological conversations that are actually not the conversation that we want to have, as worthy as they are, because we want to have a conversation about what it means to follow Jesus. And the first way I want to follow Jesus is by following the way that Jesus reflects on this command. In Matthew 5, verse 21, it says, You have heard that it was said to those who lived long ago, don't commit murder. And all who commit murder will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother or sister or sibling will be in danger of judgment. Jesus, in reflecting on this command, says, essentially, you don't have to take a life in order to take life. We can be the kind of people who take life from each other in the attitudes that we harbor in our heart, in the anger and resentments that we carry. I mean, you can read the stories of the Old Testament where people were murdered and you will read stories of jealousy and lust and revenge and greed that result in murder. Jesus says anyone who has, ha has harbored murder in their heart, anyone who has ever wished that someone were dead, is the kind of person who takes life, even if they've never taken a life. Jesus says we take life by the way that we use our words. He goes on to say, if they say to their brother or sister or sibling, you idiot, they will be in danger of being condemned by the governing council. If they say, you fool, they will be in danger metaphorically of fiery hell. Um, the first phrase, you idiot, I mean, that's a pretty good translation into English because it's just a, a regular insult meant to humiliate someone, especially in public, to kill somebody's dignity. But that second phrase, you fool, is actually a much more abusive way to speak. It's about dis dismissing the person in their entirety. It is about killing their humanity. Jesus says we can use our words condescendingly, arrogantly, sarcastically. We use words to take life from each other. As you explore the way this commandment, do not kill, is unpacked in the Old Testament law, it becomes clear that every way that we harm each other with our actions is a violation of the law. It doesn't have to be the taking of a life. Every form of abuse, emotional, verbal, psychological, spiritual, sexual, every way that we injure or harm each other with our actions. One Old Testament passage says that rape is no different than murder. Every way we hurt each other is a violation of this command. Some passages talk about um, unnecessary violence towards animals or towards the creation itself. Anytime we act as an agent of death we are in violation of this command which means friends that I and you are all killers we've all harbored murder in our heart we've all hated 
somebody. We've all felt hostility towards a person or to a group and killed the dignity of their being. We have all, with our words, done harm, irreparable damage. We've killed people's reputations and their spirit. We've all nursed grudges and carried resentments and sought revenge, wanting to hurt the people who hurt us. We are all killers. We've done it in ways that we don't even realize. We've all willfully participated in structures and systems that have created death in other people's lives, in the church and in society, treating LGBTQ plus people and indigenous people in ways that have caused suicide rates to soar. We've gladly participated in economic systems that has exploited the labor of the poor or of black people or indigenous people or people of color of um, people from other places around the world who has exploited their labor for our financial gain. We've been glad to benefit from the death dealt to other people. We've been indifferent historically to the graves at residential schools, to murdered and missing indigenous women and girls, to the living conditions in Attawapiskat, to all of the things that caused the UN to conclude that Canada was guilty of genocide of its indigenous people. And we haven't cared. We haven't cared about the poor and the homeless and the addicted. And why? Because it didn't affect us. We're killers, friends, in how we have been content to be agents of death in our culture and in our society and in our community and in our world where we have taken life even if we've never taken a life. 20th century theologian Karl Barth says it this way, the so-called offender is to be found in basic form in all people, even though it does not usually result in the crime itself. In most of us, the murderer is suppressed and chained, possibly by the command of God or possibly by no more than circumstances, convention, or the fear of punishment. Yet the murderer is very much alive in their cage and ready to leap out at any time, friends. We have all taken life. Which is why, as we've been studying these commandments and said that these last commandments are teaching us what it looks like to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves, to love our neighbor with a life-giving love means to choose to be an agent of life instead of death. We will be an agent of life in the way that we control our own behavior, our attitudes and our thoughts and so on. In Ephesians 4, it says, be angry without sinning. Don't let the sun set on your anger. Don't provide an opportunity for the devil. The, the Bible says you're going to be angry. There's no problem with that. Your anger is just a physiological response. It's your body telling you that you are very sad or very afraid or you feel very guilty or very ashamed or some other negative emotion that surfaces as anger. The Bible says you're going to feel anger. That's fine. You are responsible for how you respond to your anger. And the verse Ephesians says, deal with your anger in a healthy and expeditious way so that you don't give evil the opportunity to take root. 
We will be people who deal life in the way that we manage our words. And Ephesians 4 goes on to say, don't let any foul words come out of your mouth. Only say what is helpful when it is needed for the building up of the community so that it benefits those who hear what you say. The writer of Ephesians says, we're going to be people who only use words when they are helpful, when they are needed, when they are constructive, and when they are beneficial. Or my kids uh, growing up in school learned to think before they speak, T-H-I-N-K. We will only speak if what we're going to say is true, helpful, inspiring, necessary, and kind. That's how we become agents of life with our words. We are going to become agents of life in the way that we respond, especially to people who hurt us. In Luke chapter 6, it says, But I say to you who are willing to hear, because not all are willing to hear, instead of harboring hate and hostility and resentment towards people who hurt you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Instead of responding evil for evil, we are going to love and do good and bless and pray because we are going to be agents of life. We're going to be agents of life in the midst of our conflicts. When Jesus is talking in Matthew 5 about this commandment and about how we can harbor murder in our heart, in our attitudes, and harbor murder in our heart, and our words, he goes on to say, listen, so this matters in how you deal with conflict. If you know that somebody has something against you or you have something against somebody else, go as quickly as you can and, and deal with it as expeditiously and as graciously as humanly possible. Go and fight and work for reconciliation. To go back to Ephesians 4, in those moments of conflict, we're going to put aside all bitterness, losing our temper, anger, shouting, slander, and every other kind of evil. We're done with all of the ways that we've been agents of death in conflict. And instead, we're going to be kind. We're going to be compassionate trying to understand the other person's story and their experience and their point of view and why they're reacting the way that we're going to be compassionate and we're going to be forgiving, lovingly confronting to inspire repentance and responding with the same kind of forgiveness as that which, with which God forgave us in Christ. We're going to learn to be agents of life, to be dispensers of a life-giving love. We're going to learn to be agents of life, not just in ourselves and in our relationships. We're going to learn to be agents of life-giving love in our communities. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it says, Make sure no one repays a wrong with a wrong, but always pursue the good for each other and everyone else. We are striving, longing, struggling, stumbling, fighting to become a community that always pursues the good for each other and everyone else. 
That's why we're a community that fights and talks so much about justice, about fighting for those who have been forgotten and ignored and left behind for Indigenous people and LGBTQ plus people and immigrants and, and the poor and the disabled and the elderly and um, women. Like, that's why we want to become a community that is constantly asking who is in danger of excluded, being excluded or left behind. For whom can we act in such a way that we can spread God's shalom, God's life-giving peace of healing and joy and build that into other people's lives? We've tried to be that imperfectly, of course, trying to learn along the way, but even in this present moment of the pandemic, trying to care about people's physical safety, but also their mental health and families and kids and the immunocompromised and people at risk and uh, people who are suffering financially. As a result, we've tried um, to figure out how to be agents of life for all. We try to be a community that is building systems of life for people. It, it says in Deuteronomy 22, whenever you build a new house, you must build a railing for the roof so that you don't end up with innocent blood on your hands because someone fell off it. In the ancient world, all the homes in this part of the world had flat roofs. And it was a part of the house. It was an outdoor living space, especially if it was the coolest place in the house often, in the breeze, in the late afternoon, in the semi-desert kind of the world. It was the place where people hung out often. But if you have a house with a flat roof and people are hanging out often, um, there is the risk that someone's going to fall. And so Deuteronomy says, so it's your responsibility to build a railing, a fence around the roof because it's our job to build systems that protect and preserve and promote life, right? Like in the 21st century, it's our job when we get into a car to make sure the driver is not drunk or high, hasn't been drinking or using, and that people are wearing seatbelts. It's our job to build systems that protect and preserve and promote life. And so in everything that we build, whether services, ministries, programs here at church, or in your place of work, at your school, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your community, the question is, what systems do we have to build to make sure that we are protecting, preserving, and promoting life Always for everybody else who is in danger of being excluded or hurt or left behind. And how can we build a system that protects the life of everybody? Because friends, this is what it means to be people who live by this command. In the Heidelberg Catechism, it says this, is it enough then that we do not kill our neighbor? No. For when God condemns envy and hatred and anger, God requires us to love our enemies as ourselves, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness towards people, to prevent injury towards everyone as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. It is our responsibility to be agents of life. Years ago, there was a guy who lived in our homeless shelter in the St. Catharines location, a guy by the name of Dougie. And anybody who was around our church in the, that time, they, everybody knew Dougie. 
Dougie had lived a pretty hard-driven life. He had used enough chemicals that by the time we got to know him later in life, his brain, his faculties were failing, and Dougie was living life as a simple guy who just lived in simple relationships. Everyone who knew Dougie also knew another thing about Dougie, and that's that he had a teardrop tattoo, symbolic of the fact that he had, in some past era of his life, had taken a life. It celebrated the fact that Dougie, at that time, was a killer. But anybody who knew Dougie knew him most for a very different reason. Dougie spent a lot of time around the church, wandering the halls, just looking for people to talk to. And every single time Dougie ran into another human being, his reaction was always the same. He would look people straight in the eye and he would say the same thing every time. He would say, hey, God loves you. And he'd give you a hug. Dougie was a person who in some past version of himself had legitimately been a killer. Someone who had physically taken a life from another human being. But because of Christ, Dougie had been transformed into somebody whose only care in the world was to love everybody else as much as he loved himself, to be transformed by the love of God in his life in order to become an agent of life for everybody else. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it until it overflows. So let's be out of love for God and each other and everybody else, agents of the kind of life that overflows for everybody else. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you came into the world. You sent Jesus into the world as the one who is life and who brings life. And I pray that because of who Jesus is when he lived and died and was raised, we pray that because of the spirit that Jesus has sent to live in each one of us, that we too would become agents of life until it overflows in the lives of everybody around us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.